How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Like my wife said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Venue Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the first time today. Also welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website. Uh, you're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. So how many of you uh, uh, were at uh, the night of worship on Friday night? All right, we had a really uh, good time at our night of worship. If you're unfamiliar with our nights of worship, it's just a monthly uh, opportunity we uh, have on Friday nights, usually the fourth Friday of the month. And we just have an extended night of worship and ministry prayer, and it's usually a really sweet time. Uh, every now and then we partner with another church or a couple of different churches, which is what we did on Friday night. We partnered with our friends at Freedom Church, and we partnered with our friends at Woodlands Church. We combine, combine both our worship teams as well as our ministry prayer teams, and we had a phenomenal night uh, of worship. Um, and so I just want to encourage you, never miss an opportunity to fellowship with other uh, churches. It's so hard to get churches together, so when we put something on the calendar that combines fellowship uh, and gives you an opportunity to fellowship and worship with other churches, that's really, really important. I encourage you all to press into that. But one thing that happened on Friday is my friend Ray uh, from uh, Restoration Ministries, which is a ministry that we partner with. They bought about 40 of their people. Now, Restoration Ministries, among other things that they do, they run what we would call like a halfway house for people who are trying to get on their feet. They have a men's house and a women's house, and they brought about 40 of their residents to come and worship. Uh, and for those of us who lead worship and pray for people at night of worship, we love when the Restoration folks come because they plug right into worship and many of them are just so hungry, and it's easy really to minister to them. Well, they brought 40 of their guys, and they had a fantastic time. Many of them got ministry, prayer. One brother came up and gave his life to Jesus at the end of the night of worship, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's really important. So I was over at Restoration Ministry serving at the food pantry yesterday, and Ray, who runs the place, who brought all these guys, he came up to me and said, I was hoping you came today because I wanted to share with you how how impactful that evening was. He said, we took all the guys and gals out to Dairy Queen after the night of worship, and they were just abuzz about what the Holy Spirit had done in their life. And person after person came up to Ray and said, listen, I have never like raised my hands in a church before. One guy said, I was, I've been always afraid to kneel. And there was all these firsts that they were experiencing. It was like, it wasn't even super churchy, it wasn't super religious, but many of them reported having really supernatural uh, experiences with the Holy Spirit and God had really began something such that they're asking, like, when is the next one? Now, they caught us at a bad time because we usually take the summer months off, right? But we're even thinking about programming something maybe in the middle of the summer just so that we can continue the momentum. So pray for the brother that came uh, and gave his life to Jesus and pray that the Lord would just continue to do a work in the life of those uh, men and women who came. I want to also just mention that uh, many of you may also know this, that we're in the midst of a building campaign. We have the unique opportunity to buy this space, and so we have been raising money for that and just sort of praying and asking for God's provision. And as I mentioned last week, last week uh, we got a big gift that took us to over $100,000 raised so far, right? And so that's, yeah, that's over a quarter. That's over a quarter of what's been pledged in just, and we're just rounding out the second month of our campaign. And so we're at the point right now where we're dealing with banks and trying to work out loans and things like that. So would you just continue to pray each and every day? Would you continue to pray for smooth sailing for us? But we're also at a point where we have some, uh, some larger donors, either that are directly connected with us or people who you know people that know us, 
that are considering sowing into what we're doing here. So would you also just continue to pray that the Lord would just open the windows of heaven. My instinct as we go along is to just kind of file this down to something that is manageable. But we call this more than we can imagine for very good reason. We feel like the Lord gave us that. And so we still believe that the Lord has a few tricks up his sleeve and he's going to surprise us. So would you continue to pray uh, with us as we engage that? Amen? Well, I have the privilege this morning of continuing a sermon series that I started uh, a couple of weeks ago, a series that we're simply calling Stuff Jesus Said. And what we've been saying week after week is that words are really important. Words really matter. Words are especially important when it comes to our faith, uh, especially our life with Jesus. And we've also been saying that nobody's words are more important Nobody's words are more significant than the words of Jesus. And so we've been taking time throughout this series to walk through, carefully walk through some of the key sayings of Jesus. Maybe they're sayings, maybe they're questions, because we believe that in those sayings, in those questions, are life-giving principles that if we explore it, we might discover more uh, powerfully who God is, and not just who God is, but who we are and what we're supposed to be up to. We examine the words of Jesus as we had over the, over the last few weeks, and as we'll continue to do over the next few weeks, we discover that Jesus had a lot to say about the world. Uh, he had a lot to say about the people of the world, and he had a lot to say about the kingdom. He had a lot to say about himself. And as we jog through this, we've learned some key things. And one of the things that I mentioned last week is that if you really carefully examine the words of Jesus, you will find that almost all of them had what I call an evangelistic lean, right? In other words, Jesus was all about uh, evangelism. He was all about uh, reaching the lost. And so if I, the way I define evangelism is just the indiscriminate broadcasting of the seed of the gospel, the seed of Christian witness, seeds about the kingdom and the, the kingdom life, like the indiscriminate broadcasting of the seed, that's what I call evangelism, because I know that some of that seed will fall on good ground. Some of that seed will fi fall on people who are eager. The Spirit's drawing them. I don't know who the Spirit's drawing, so is that my job to try to be particular, to be discriminating about where I cast seed? And so I want to sow seeds, as Jesus did, seeds of evangelism everywhere, and that's what Jesus was about. But if you examine his words, you will find that there was an evangelistic lean, an evangelistic tent to his words, and that's why he was such an effective minister of the gospel. And so it's helpful, and not just helpful, but it's necessary for us to pay close attention to the words of Jesus because Jesus came to this earth not just to die for our sins, but he came to pro proclaim the good news. He came to preach the gospel, to seek and save the lost. And if we connect with the words of Jesus, if we internalize them, then we are better equipped to partner with, to join in, to get on the boat with what, what we call the mission of God. The mission of God, right? What God is up to and what he wants us to be up to. I simply define the mission of God as the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. The whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And it's hard, it's not impossible, but it's hard to carefully examine the words and the life of Jesus and to miss that, right? And so my goal as we walk through the words of Jesus to help you understand that not just Jesus was just a great teacher, a great guy, a powerful like miracle worker, 
but he was the, the guy that we should look to and listen to uh, to get on mission as individuals, to get on mission as a church. And so one of the things that I'll unpack today uh, that Jesus often talked about is he talked about sin, right? He talked about sin. And I know that just that's our favorite subject. We just love talking about sin. We just love uncovering deep truths about sin. We especially love looking in the mirror of Scripture to look at our own sinfulness, right? We love that. Some of you are giving me a blank stare because we don't love that. In fact, we hate that. But Jesus talks so much about sin because it's our biggest problem. In fact, it's the only thing that is standing between us and God. It's the only thing that's standing between us and the rich, satisfying, good life, as we call it here, that Jesus has for us, our sin. Our sin is not just these sort of dastardly deeds that we do behind closed doors in the dark. Our sin is just an attitude, our hardwiring, our predisposition to want to be the boss of our own life, to call, the own, to call our own shots, to be in charge. And if you pay attention to your life, particularly when you were at the helm, when you were at the wheel, when you were in the driver's seat, that is a downward road that leads to hopelessness and nowhere, and that is the life of sin, being your own boss. And in comes Jesus with the gospel or the good news, and the good news is summed up this way, your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. That's the essence of the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven if, if we come to Jesus. And I know you want a new house, some of you. I know you want a new car. I know you want your relationships mended. But what we need the most, friends, is to have this whole sin deal taken care of so that we can get on with the business of being who God called us to be so we can go on and get on mission, uh, mission of God, seeking and saving the laws, as we say it here, continuing the ministry of Jesus, which is what we were created to do. Doesn't matter what your profession is, doesn't matter how kids, many kids you have, whether you're married or single, in your own sphere of life, you were created primarily to be on mission with God, and there is one ugly thing standing in our way, and that is sin, but Jesus comes with the good news that our sins can be forgiven. And as we continue to look at stuff Jesus said, Jesus says exactly that. And that's the title of this morning's message, Your Sins Can Be Forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And I would just submit to you this morning, this is probably one of the most beautiful phrases that Jesus has ever said. No sweeter words have ever been spoken, particularly from Jesus, because this scratches our you know, most prominent inch, itch. It, it deals with our deepest need. Your sins are forgiven. We'll unpack those words of Jesus. I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning. So would you meet me in Mark chapter 2 this morning? Mark chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the edges of your row. Feel free to use those. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take one of those Bibles home as a gift from us to you. I will also be interacting with uh, scriptures on the screens in front of you. Feel free also to use your phones if you're comfortable doing that. Mark chapter 2, while you find it, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word. Thank you so much that you would use a guy like me 
to bring your word and your truth. Thank you that you trust me with that. I take it very seriously, and I thank you for the opportunity. Father, I know that each and every person that's here or even listening to this through our website or podcast, Lord, that it's no coincidence that we're listening to these words today at this very moment. Father, would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak? May your truth in your light shine through. God, move the preacher out of the way this morning so you can do what you do best, and that is draw hearts and minds toward you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Mark chapter 2, start at verse 1. And we're looking at the words of Jesus where he says, your sins are forgiven. Good news. Start at verse 1. It says this, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, excuse me, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, what do you, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before, right? This is an interesting text, fascinating story, full of all sorts of stuff. There's so much stuff here to deal with. But the one thing we see at the very outset of this passage, the book of Mark, chapter 2, is that Jesus had become somewhat of a celebrity, right? Jesus had become somewhat of a celebrity because of the authority in which he walked, because of how he carried himself, because of the truth that he spoke, not to mention the miracles that he worked, like the word got around, right? And so whenever Jesus would come to town, he, he had no problem drawing a crowd. Jesus, to some, was famous, and to others, he was infamous, but one thing that famous and infamous people have in common is that people, they want to draw, they want to come around, they want to look. They talk, you know, I want to tune in, I want to see what's happening, right? So in these crowds that Jesus would draw were his fans, like people who were just there because it was an exciting thing, right? Uh, were his followers, people who were at varied stages of devotion, like they, their hearts were pricked by Jesus' words. The Holy Spirit was drawing them toward God and the kingdom, and like they were following Jesus, they were eagerly wanting to be disciples. Uh, also among these people who would gather to listen to Jesus were the haters, right? The people who were, were interested in throwing stones, proverbial stones at Jesus. They didn't believe him. They, they hated him. But nonetheless, they were in the meeting. Uh, Jesus drew the curious, people who weren't, they, they weren't sold, they weren't believers, they weren't quite 
card-carrying members just yet, but they were kicking the tires of faith, and they would show up to the meeting because they were just curious. They were interested. The arms crossed, you know, skeptic was in the meeting as well. The doubters, and I imagine there's just a handful of nosy people who didn't know who was in the house. They just saw a bunch of cars out front, and they thought, let me go and check out and see what this is going on, right? My point is, Jesus, at this point, did not have trouble drawing a crowd. And the same is true in this particular episode where he's in Capernaum, he's staying at a house, which is, was his custom. He wasn't checking into hotels. He was going, doing ministry, going from place to place. He would stay with people. He knew they would host him. But Jesus would soon turn these places where we're staying into like makeshift conference centers where he would just like begin to preach the word, and the word would get out, and like, before you knew it, the house was full of people. The house was packed, right? And so something crazy happens at this particular meeting, at this particular pop-up conference that Jesus is having, something crazy happens. Some guys bring their friends uh, who is in need of a miracle. And this you know, audacious act sets off a chain of events. And as I walk through this text this week, I notice four things. And I want to help you to notice those four things so that we can perfect our evangelistic lean, to use a phrase that we've been using over the last couple of weeks, so that we can better explore what it means for us to have the same heart in us that was in Christ Jesus, uh, to develop a compassion, a heart that breaks for the lost, a sense of urgency, a sense of duty to respond to those who are lost broken, in need of a Savior around us. I notice four things, and I want you to notice those four things as we together perfect our evangelistic lean individually and as a church. The first thing I notice is that the paralyzed man needed help getting to Jesus. Now, this is no small thing, but it's worth noticing. It's necessary for us to notice that this guy was in a particular state where he could not himself get to Jesus. He could not himself get to Jesus, and so he needed help, the help of others, in order to get to Jesus. Now, it's worth pointing out that there are numerous accounts in the Gospels, interactions with Jesus, where the sick and the broken were able to get to Jesus on their own, right? Uh, numerous accounts, maybe it's the woman with the issue of blood, the, the, the scriptures paint a picture of struggle, like she had to struggle. It was a struggle to press through the crowds. It was a struggle to get to Jesus. She had to press through some obstacles, but she was able-bodied enough to press her way to Jesus to receive healing and the acknowledgement from Jesus that would make her whole. She was able to do that, right? And there are other instances where Jesus came to the person that needed wholeness and healing. Jesus came to the man who was paralyzed at the side of the pool, right? Jesus was passing by Zacchaeus who needed a healing in his soul, right? Jesus was passing by the 10 lepers who cried out to him for healing and they were healed. Jesus made it to them. But there are certain circumstances and it's really helpful for, for us to, pick, to, 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 to figure this out. There are certain circumstances. There are some people, there are certain scenarios that, that require our help in order to get them to Jesus. I'll admit, as a preacher, having a disposition to say, yeah, listen, you know where the church is? You know our operating hours, we're having small groups, you know where we are if you need help. 
And honestly, for some people, that, uh, that approach and that disposition is appropriate because uh, we can get a little bit lazy when it comes to, like, we want, you know, like a, a Uber Eats version, like for Christianity, where we dial up the preacher and he comes, like, to our door, and we don't have to press, and we don't have to put ourselves out, and we don't have to sacrifice, and we don't have to stop doing what I do. We just want, a, like, a, a preacher to just come when you, like, kind of like you order Jimmy John's. And in those moments and with those people, we can say, no, you know where we are. Press into this thing. But there are certain others uh, who have such profound measures of brokenness. Their paralysis is such where, like, if they don't get some help coming to Jesus, then they won't be in position to receive what God has for them. This is the reality of this particular man. Scripture tells us that there was no more room in the house, even outside the door. Jesus was preaching the word of God to this crowd. Verse 3, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. They couldn't get through the door. So they, get this, they went up on the roof. They dug a hole through the roof above Jesus' head. I don't know how they got precisely above Jesus' head. Uh, but they dug a hole, and they lowered their buddy down on a mat right in front of Jesus. And the Bible has some sensational stories in it, but when I read this, I go, come on, man. This is, this is incredible. This is, this, is, this is significant. This is important. This is inspiring. This is crazy. These guys just go up to the roof, right? They're carrying this guy. They just go up to the roof, and they think, this is the best possible way to do this. I'm not going to ask people to excuse me. Hey, I got a sick guy here. Their first thought was, let's go up to the roof, dig a hole in some random dude's roof, and let's just make this thing happen. And we can unpack that for days, but what stands out, what's sitting on the top of this story is just the word desperation, right? Desperation. This is like an awkward thing. You're carrying a guy. You got to get up to the roof. You got to find a shovel. This is, this is awkward. This is sweaty work. It's an audacious move. It's risky. It seems inconsiderate of the person's home that you're just sort of digging through. And I just imagine, what if I'm having a small group at my house? You know, we got the snacks on the table. We're going around into the icebreaker, and just the, the plaster just starts falling from the floor, from, from the ceiling, right? I, I would be put off by this. This is a huge intrusion. But these four men were friends of the paralyzed guy. They were his buddies. And what's interesting about this story is this, the scriptures don't give us any indication whatsoever that the paralyzed guy even wanted this. All we know is that his four friends, the guys that brought him to Jesus, wanted this badly for him. They wanted this badly for him. These four guys make your friends look like total deadbeats. Now, you're feeling good, pretty good about your friends, but your friends probably won't do this for you, right? And so here's this extreme scenario that I think we can learn from today. 
And I think that as we examine like this scenario, and we look at these guys, I feel like I should ask myself, and since I feel like I've asked myself, I should ask you, who in your life needs your help in this way? And I'll go cutting a hole in the roof of the church. There's many doors you can walk through. But if we look at this figuratively, uh, even if we look at the need figuratively, uh, we look at, you know, who in your life is in such a desperate state that they need your desperate, like, audacious, outside-of-the-box, like, thoughtfulness in order to get them to where they need to be, like, at, at the feet of Jesus? Who among you? has friends in your life that can't themselves get to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about somebody whose legs don't work. I'm not even simply talking about somebody who doesn't have a ride to get to church. I mean, the, the, the implications and the application of this reality is, is far and wide, but something tells me that it won't be hard for each of us to think of the people in our lives who either are so paralyzed in their soul who are so paralyzed in their mind and their thinking and how they perceive the world, who are so gripped with doubt, fear, anxiety, or church hurt, that if a representative of the king in the kingdom doesn't bring them to Jesus' feet, they would never come themselves. Who needs your help? Because Jesus doesn't say, oh, what is happening? This ceiling falling on my head. Jesus responds, verse 5, says, Jesus seeing their faith. Whose faith? The guy's faith? We don't know anything about his faith. We don't know anything about his faith. And I'm tempted to make, to draw conclusions about his faith. The scripture's silent about his faith. I'll be silent about his faith. But who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus sees their faith. The four friends. No, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't have a problem at all with the audacity of this action. He might have a little smirk on his face. He might say, this, this is how you do it. I imagine that Jesus would tell this story over and over and over as he preached. Maybe it's not contained in the gospel. This is memorable for him. He's pleased with this because, like, well, this is who we are. Seeing their faith, the friend's faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. First thing that stands out to me is that this guy needed help, and we are called to more actively get involved with the healing and the wholeness of the people who need Jesus in our lives. Second thing I see here is that Jesus has his priorities straight. Jesus has his priorities straight. I might add to that, Jesus always has his priorities straight. Because these guys brought their paralyzed friend for a specific reason. They went through all this trouble for a specific reason, and I have to believe that they had a certain outcome that they were hoping for, right? But Jesus is like always, like there's always a twist. There's always something unexpected. His ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. And so uh, whenever we begin to question Jesus' timing or his methods, we have to understand something. Like we said last week, Jesus, like he knows what he's doing. And his priorities are always in order. 
And so when I think about priorities, I can't help but also think about values, right? Our values are the things that we uh, think are important, things that are meaningful to us, right? Priorities, on the other hand, are like the way we order those values. And you've heard me say many, many times that the order, you know, you can have the right values in the wrong order and it will completely ruin your life, even if you're off by just one or two. But to have great priorities means that the, the things that you value, the things that you count as important are in the right order. And I'm so thankful that we serve a Jesus that always has his priorities in order. You say, preacher, how does this apply to this particular passage? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4, they lower the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is great. His sins are forgiven, and because we're good Christians, we know better. We know what we're supposed to clap for. We know we're supposed to cheer for salvation. Salvation is good, right? Salvation is good, right? Yes, salvation is good. Let's clap for that, but let, let's be real, right? Let's be real. Just imagine that you're the four guys, carried this guy from his house, up the roof, dug a hole, in somebody's roof, lowered him in front of Jesus, and Jesus makes this pronouncement, hey, your sins are forgiven. Like, you think they, they like, celebrated that? Think like, yes, that's what we came for, so he can get saved. If I was one of the four friends, I would be like, dude, are you kidding me? We didn't come for that. We heard that you're multiplying fishes and loaves. We, we heard that you're opening blind eyes. We heard that you, like, healed the guy who was paralyzed for decades. Like, we came for that action. And Jesus, just in his casual way, just says, hey, his sins are forgiven. You go. Imagine you're the paralyzed guy who might have even protested. Hey, guys, listen, don't go through all this trouble. I don't want to be the center of attention. They said, dude, you want your legs to get healed or what? Okay, take me, right? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's like, I don't. Sins are forgiven. I didn't even know I was a sinner. That's not what I'm here for. Imagine you're the owner of the house. Like all of this for that. Your sins are forgiven. Case closed. I'd be disappointed. You might be disappointed. But in my mind, it speaks to Jesus' priorities. Now, he ends up healing both, which, which, which is super fantastic. But I just think it paints this picture that's like legs or your soul. Like, heal your legs, heal your soul. Like, what, what's most important? Like, what's the greater miracle here? And again, we know how to answer this because we're good church people, some of us, Right? Well, of course, my soul, I want my soul to be right with you. But if, I, but if I'm honest, Lord, I just, like, give me something I can hold. I've been praying for a house. I've been praying for a car. I've been praying for my son to stop acting a fool. I've been praying for, you know, for these bills to come down. I've been praying for healing in my body. I've been praying for this cancer to not, call, you know, to, to ruin my life. That, that, like, if I had to pick, if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm answering honestly without my church friends around, I'm like, Heal these legs, Lord. But Jesus points out to me 
and to us what his eyes are on. And the first thing that Jesus ministers to after this audacious act is he ministers, he ministers to the soul. So, so a question that we've been asking uh, each other over the last four or five years is, is, how's your soul? Because we know that the hidden things oftentimes are the most important things. As we attempt to buy this building, like we didn't come into this place and go, my goodness, look at this foundation. It's fantastic. Have you ever seen a foundation like this? Oh, the plumbing and the wall is superb. Like, this is, this is immaculate. We just, we, got, we just got to have these pipes. No, what, what draws our attention most often, what, 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 what we're preoccupied with most often are the exterior things, the things that we can touch, the things that we can hold, the things that we can see. And Jesus is almost always, he's almost always deeply concerned about what lies beneath the waterline, what lies beneath what can be seen. His target, friends, is always our souls. It's always our souls, which is why at every turn we're baking this question into our small group and our discipleship and our preaching. How is your soul? How is your life with Jesus? And you could sit in somebody's church for decades and not have somebody ask you that question. You can be in small groups and discipleship groups for decades and not have somebody inquire about your soul. They'll ask you about your marriage. They'll ask you about your kids. They'll ask you about that business you're starting. They'll ask you about the rash on your face. But seldom are you asked, hopefully not in this church, but seldom are you asked, how are your guts? How is the motor of your life? How is the seat of your emotions, the very, the very essence of you that is supposed to connect and relate to the very essence of God? Like, how was your soul? How, when's the last time you did business with the reality of that question? And so you can't look at interactions that Jesus has with people without coming away from, from, from those interactions and exchanges uh, with this firm understanding that Jesus cares more for our souls than anything else. More for our souls than anything. The, the, the arrow of the kingdom is aimed at your soul. Because what does Jesus know that oftentimes we overlook? He knows that if your soul is intact, if your heart's right, if you're, like your guts is in a good place, you've sought the kingdom first and have planted the flag of Jesus at the very center of your life, Everything else that you need will follow. Everything else that you need will follow, which means that even if you don't get the external thing that you've prayed for, even if the healing doesn't come, even if the marriage terminates in divorce, even if your kids act a fool, even if the cancer comes back, if your soul's intact, though the winds in life may blow, you're steady. Though the most unfortunate of circumstances may, be, may befall you and overtake you, your soul will be what? Anchored in the Lord. 
What does Jesus know? Is that if your soul's intact, then he, God, God will be the only opinion that matters ultimately. And anybody else around you can say what they will, think what they will. Yeah, it might sting. Yeah, it might hurt. But your soul will be anchored in God's thoughts, God's identity for you. And you will be, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, uh, like your, your, your house will be planted on, on a firm rock that when the waves and the winds of life blow, you will stand firm. More than all of that, what Jesus knows when your soul is intact, that your sin will be dealt with. Your sins will be forgiven. Not only will they be forgiven, you will have an awareness of that sin and a predisposition to lean toward Jesus and to call upon him because you know that you need something outside of yourself to fix what's wrong with you. And so there's no... No, no, no wonder why Jesus doesn't go chasing to, to fix everything we call him for and to just go checking off our wish list like some crazy grandma. You know, the grandma, kids just get whatever they want. I'm thankful for grandparents in my life, by the way. But Jesus isn't like moved by that. He, he doesn't look, he looked beyond our pouty faces and our crossed arms. And our sense of entitlement is, are we going to deal with the soul today or what? <coughs> and some of you, 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 you've, never, you've never dealt with your soul. You don't, you don't even deal in that realm. And unfortunately, because of that, we're desensitized to our, the evangelistic needs of others that our efforts for evangelism and our efforts for extending the ministry of Jesus is not just to see uh, paralyzed legs healed. It's not just to see broken relationships restored, but our ultimate evangelistic lean is toward seeing the souls of men and women come into connection with Jesus Christ. The worst thing we can become is a bunch of do-gooders. The worst thing we could be reduced to is just being a church and just does all this outreach just so that people can say, oh, that church, they're really nice. Well, nice, the external things are just that. They're external things, but our aim is so that they connect with Jesus and the gospel, the reality of their sin, not just their sin, but that the, the price has been paid. This is good news. And so Jesus' priorities should, like, help us rearrange ours and drive at this idea that he is aimed at our soul, mercifully aimed at our soul. So that causes us to do business with our own soul, but it perfects our evangelistic lean and practice to those around us. Like the place should have erupted when Jesus announced that his sins are forgiven. The place should have went crazy, right? But when I say, hey, somebody gave their life to Jesus, sometimes we hear crickets here. Sometimes one person in the back is clapping, right? But when we talk about some miracle, some external thing, like the place goes crazy. But like, maybe we switch that. Maybe we switch that because our priorities have become more aligned with the priorities of the king. Jesus always has his priorities straight. Third thing I noticed, and this is really interesting, but it's a common theme in interactions with Jesus throughout scripture, is that some people will have a problem 
with your healing. Some people will have a problem with your healing. And I, and I wrestle with whether or not to even include this, but it's so prominent in the text. And this is a reoccurring thing that comes up whenever Jesus is about healing people. Whenever Jesus is about ministering to people, there's always somebody or a group of people, and, and, and in this case, it's like the usual suspects. There's always somebody who has an issue with it. And so I think that's important for us because I think the Lord just wants us, particularly as we perfect our evangelistic link, to, to budget for that reality. To budget for that reality that not everybody will celebrate the healing that we bring. Not everybody will celebrate the good news. Not everybody will celebrate the light and the salt that we bring to the party. But I think it's worth asking why. Why is it that in the face of miracles and salvation and people like turning over a new leaf, being transformed by the power of God, like why is it that people just have an instinctive negative reaction to that? Some people are just haters. That's who they are. They just hate to see anybody shine. They hate to see goodness happening to anybody else, right? Some people are in a unique position to benefit from your brokenness and to benefit from who you used to be, and so they don't celebrate with you and healing comes. They don't celebrate with you and when the kingdom comes into your life because they were somehow benefiting from your brokenness. But in this particular case, I think the why is just kind of like just routine, run-of-the-mill disbelief. Disbelief. Jesus, like, was not a believable guy. This whole message of the gospel and the kingdom was like, it was hard to believe for these guys. It was just, it was out there. And before we were too hard on them, we had to understand that there were many people who came before Jesus who said that they were a Messiah, who said, you know, that they were fulfillment of prophecy, and those people just sort of faded away. And many of these people who had an issue with what Jesus did, we thought, it's just, it's only a matter of time. We have to protect people from these crazy guys who come in saying that they're the Son of God. And so it's good old disbelief, doubt, disbelief, hostility that has these guys hating on what, what, what should just be a celebrated miracle of the soul. Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6 says, but some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, no, as we said last week, these aren't like some troublemaking like rascals from, you know, who've just robbed the bank the night before and all of a sudden they found themselves in a meeting. These are like church people. These are the teachers of religious law. They're sitting in the meeting. Like, why they're in the meeting, I don't know. Like, right? They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's about. But yet, they're in the crowd. And they go, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus takes issue with this for the same reason he took issue with them last week. That's because these are self-appointed experts on the, on the kingdom and they know nothing about the kingdom. The self-appointed, like, experts on something that they 
clearly are not connected to. They don't have an evangelistic bone in their body. All of their faith has nothing to do with seeing other people come into a rich and satisfying relationship with God. It's just kind of all about themselves. And so, like, their job is to sit there and pick at what Jesus is doing, is to discredit what Jesus is doing, even in the face of powerful miracles. Now, Jesus presses back. Verse 8 says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? And I'll paraphrase it. Jesus says, what's your problem, man? In similar fashion to last week, it's probably the same guys. They say, hey, man, what is your issue with me? What is your issue with this? You're supposed to be happy about this. Jesus says, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and pick up your mat and walk? In other words, Jesus is saying, you think I'm just shucking and driving here? You think I went after the easy thing because it's not visible, because it's not provable? You think I'm some snake? I mean, I sense an air of, like, Jesus is put off by this. But what's interesting here is just Jesus says, I didn't go after something that's hidden just because, like, you know, it, it's not provable and that you can't call me on this. He says, like, I went after that because that's the most important thing. That's the most significant thing. And I think it's helpful for us, particularly those of you who are at a stage of a life where your life is being turned over, where you are being transformed, right? Right, Jesus, like you're at this early stages and people are just like, you know, that's, you know, that's a bunch of baloney, right? I'm trying to find the right word. You know, that's a bunch of baloney, right? You know, that faith is just a crutch for the weak. And I believe that Jesus put this opposition in here for us to understand that everybody wants celebrated. I think Jesus put this opposition in here so that we, those of us who seek to be more evangelistic, those who seek to get on mission with God, those who seek to extend the ministry and the kingdom and the message, the good news of, of Jesus Christ, would understand that we should not be swayed by those who don't celebrate what God is doing in and around us, largely because they simply can't see it. Internal work of transformation sometimes, oftentimes, particularly at the very beginning, it's simply not visible to the naked eye. It's simply not visible. There's nothing there to celebrate quite yet. And so I think that that's helpful for us to understand if we're going to do this consistently and to do it well. The fourth and perhaps most important thing that I notice that we must notice as people of the kingdom as people who not only long to see souls saved, but we also, as vineyard people, as kingdom of God's people, we want to see the miraculous, right? We want to see the inbreaking of the kingdom, that blind eyes will be opened, barren wombs will yield children, right? Paralyzed legs. Well, like, we long to see that. We pray for that. We've seen a little bit of it. I think we want to see more. I know we want to see more. The people who want to see both the kingdom come and change hearts, have the arrow of the kingdom pointed at the soul, but also want to see the manifestation of God's power and physical healing, we have to understand that the physical healing will always point to the healing of the soul. The physical external healing will always, always, always point to 
the healing of the soul. In other words, we should not ever lose sight of the main thing. And I'll just tell you, the person who's been uh, around church my whole life, who's been in a charismatic church, you know, varying degrees of charismatic church, it's so easy to go after the miracles. It's so easy if we hear a guy who has a prophetic gift, you know, that the church is full because we want to see the supernatural in action. So easy to just be, you know, to, to, to see the physical healing and the external miracles as like the main event. It's not the main thing. Those things were always designed to point to the authority of God, to the power of God to do the most important work, and that is bring, to bring souls into saving relationship with Jesus. Let me say it again. The external physical miracles are great. We long to see them. We've seen them. We want to see more. But that is not, nor has it ever been, the main event. And so what I love about Jesus, particularly if you have eyes to see it, that you always see that the physical miracles will point to what God wants to do internally, right? So Jesus, in response to these haters, to respond, in response to the people who were not happy about this setting this guy free and healing his soul, Jesus says in verse 10, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Let's read that again. So I will prove to you that I, Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins. And so why did Jesus, like Jesus, as far as he was concerned, like, the big miracle had been done. This guy, his sins were forgiven. He's in the family of faith. But Jesus says, I will prove to you, this is what, this is what you want to see. Like, you want to see something external. You want to be certain that I have the power to do this. You want to be certain that I am who I say I am. So Jesus says, in order to prove to you, he turned to the man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Verse 12 says, And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. And I can't help but wonder, what was that reaction when Jesus said his sins were forgiven? Like, they weren't high-fiving and like a praise break. The guy get on the organ and like tear the church up. Right? What is that an indication of? It's an indication that our fallen, broken, skeptical, cynical human nature, we often need to see something, right? And so God loves to heal. He loves when people get out of wheelchairs. He loves when blind eyes. He loves to make the lump disappear. But all of that is to demonstrate what he wants to do beneath the surface. And so Jesus never heals anybody without saying, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven, or something like that, because what he's saying is, hey, what I did for your legs, I did for your heart. If you want an external picture of what I did inside of you, what you couldn't see, what you didn't have, like, the spiritual maturity to cheer for when it happened, like, I want to show you on the outside uh, just a picture, a glimpse of the work that I'm doing on the inside. Right? 
And so this is why these power encounters often led with the physical, external, supernatural miracle so that faith can arise for what Jesus wants to do, like on the inside. Many of the people that Jesus healed, many of the people that he delivered were people who were far from God, who had no grit for him, right? So Jesus cast legions of demons out of you, all of a sudden you want to hear what he has to say. Jesus opens your blind eyes like he could sell you a car or a boat after that. You're like, hey, whatever, right? And so the external miracles always, always, always uh, point to the healing work that Jesus wants to do in our souls. And let me just tell you something. I, I, by this point, I'm just ruined. I've, see, I've seen enough of this to, to, to know like, that, that Jesus is the real deal. I've seen enough to, to, to go and minister to people on the strength alone of what I've seen Jesus do in my own life, internal transformation, external healing and miracles. I could go for decades on just what I've seen the Lord do in my life and in the life around me. I'm, I'm convinced, right? And let me tell you, I long to see the power of God break out in profound ways, both in these walls and outside of these walls, but I just have to draw myself back and draw us all back to this reality that the main thing must be kept the main thing. Jesus is after souls. And the most beautiful statement in this passage is not pick up your bed and walk, although it got the most cheers and applause from the crowd. The most beautiful words ever spoken was your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And worship team, you can come up as I close. So I say all this today to, to, to put our hearts in the right position, to help us perfect, as I say, our evangelistic lean, and to ask you again, who might need your help to get to Jesus this week? who has such extreme paralysis of their soul, and maybe their physical capacities might be limited, who needs you to put them on a mat, cut a hole in somebody's roof, and lower them down in front of the vehicle? Like, who comes to mind right now? I don't say it out loud, but I want you thinking along those lines. Who comes to mind? I also want to ask you, are your priorities as it relates to what you need from Jesus or what you're praying for for others? Do your priorities align with Jesus' priorities? Is your primary goal for yourself is to have your soul be intact? Is your primary prayer for those who you want to see come into the kingdom that God would arrest their souls, forgive their sins, and help them, you know, usher them into the good life with Jesus? Like, is that like your priority? Is that your number one aim? It should be. For those of us who will extend the ministry of Jesus, for those of us who will be on mission with God to take the whole gospel to the whole world, like, I need our priorities to be aligned with Christ's priorities. Am I willing to press through those around me who don't seem as excited as they should be about what God is doing in my life and what God is doing in the life of others, realizing that much of it is they just, the Spirit hasn't drawn them yet, they haven't seen what we've seen? And that that shouldn't stop us from pressing in. It shouldn't stop us from still extending the kingdom 
of God. And finally, that we are anchored in this reality that the external things are never the main event. They are never the main event, but they simply point to the power of God to do what he most wants to do, and that is draw the hearts, souls, minds of men and women to him. Listen, I desperately want us to be an evangelistic church. I, I desperately want us to be people who, when we scatter at around 1230 or so, that we go into our corners of the world and we are salt and we are light and the arrows of the kingdom are aimed at the souls and the hearts of the people who God have put in our world. Your sins are forgiven. Take that message with you this morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that while we were still in our sin, you came and died for us. Not only did you come to die for us, but you came to show us a more excellent way. You came to model for us how we should relate to the world around us. Father, would you break our hearts for those who don't know you? Would you break our hearts for those who need your kingdom to break into their life? Father, may we be carriers of your good news. May we be extenders of your kingdom. May we be on mission with you this week. May we help those, Father, who cannot help themselves. Give us patience, give us eyes to see, give us strength, give us courage to be your hands and feet in the world around us. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.